I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Helen Pluckrose, the editor of Aereo Magazine and co-author with James Lindsay of the new book, Cynical Theories. Uh, thanks for coming on, Helen. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> now, describe the book a little bit. Uh, there's a longer subtitle that sort of describes what cynical theories refers to. Yeah, the... Uh, the book sort of traces the development and the, the evolution of a few core ideas from postmodern thought from the late 1960s to um, right now. Um, we, we argue that certain ideas about objective knowledge, about society being constructed in systems of power and privilege, about um, the, the importance of language for constructing reality, the dismantlement of boundaries, the um, cultural relativism and the loss of the individual and how the, where these ideas came from, the original um, sort of French postmodernists, particularly Michel Foucault, and how they have evolved into what we are now calling social justice, scholarship and activism. So, you know, the, everybody's, the, you know, the, the culture war of the moment is all about wokeness and cancel culture. And uh, I almost feel old for calling it political correctness because that was sort of the, the key, the favorite term of the 1990s. But there's this, this whole cult, culture war debate over that that's going on right now. When, what you're doing really is, is tracing the philosophical roots of that. Yeah, and um, it's um, very particular ideas. It, it's really better even, I think, than, than philosophy to describe it as a concept of the world and society. It's this underlying it all is this idea that um, knowledge is a construct of power, um, that we can't see these power structures very well, but certain powerful sources in society get to decide what is and isn't knowledge. Then these ways of talking about things get legitimized. Everybody talks this way and it maintains these power structures. Yeah, one of the things I found most uh, useful about the book is that these are theories that require a certain amount of translation. I mean, I, I my background is in philosophy, and I remember I, what I like to say is, for example, reading Immanuel Kant is, is a little bit like being the guy who discovered how to decode Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? <laughs> you know, these very complex, and that's very true of the postmodernists. They have all these terms of uh, capitalized terms, social justice and theory are capitalized because they mean something special and all sorts of sort of arcane jargon, which I think is to some extent deliberate. Yeah, that was certainly in the, the first sort of two generations of it, really. In, in the 1960s, when we had um, Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, for example, then there was um, a certain a need for an ambiguity of language because central to the theory was the idea that language could not straightforwardly convey meaning. So it was used quite loosely. Um, there were a lot of ne neologisms and, um, and you know, t terms just used in different ways from how they were understood. Then in the late 1980s and early 90s, when the sort of uh, branches that we know now as critical race theory and queer theory um, and post-colonial theory really sort of took off, that that continued to a certain extent in, in most of them, particularly, I mean, Judith Butler and Homi Baba have won the worst sentence competition um, so because, because they really are, you know, you, you just have to interpret an awful lot of it. But um, critical race theory didn't really do that. It, it was always quite clear. And this is what we're seeing a dominance of at the moment. So if, if you read the two most um, influential books on race, which are sort of forming the social justice position, Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo, you'll find they're very, very easy to read. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how there's been sort of a, I think you call it a, a mutation uh, of the theory from something that was very arcane and abstract and radically skeptical to something that became more uh, usable and concrete and actionable and, and uh, uh, less skeptical than dogmatic. Yeah, I mean, this this is what we've seen, and it, it's why quite a lot of the people, the academics who who appreciated the first postmodernists, uh, keep saying to us, "This cannot be postmodernism. Postmodernism is a skepticism towards meta narratives," and what we are seeing right now is a very simplistic meta narrative about how race works, about how power works, about how knowledge works. This isn't really postmodernism, but 
I, th I think that that argument can certainly be made. The first postmodernists, they were deconstructive. They wanted to take apart these um, systems which were sort of accepted as common sense and just sort of really dismantle things. It was the next lot, the, the people in the, um, you know, people like Judith Butler, like Kimberly Crenshaw um, in the 90s who, who wanted to rebuild and so they said we can't just keep pulling everything apart we have to accept that some objective truth exists some um experiences so the thing that is real is these systems of power and privilege and that has gradually sort of solidified until you can you see if you, if you were to read um d'angelo's white fragility you you have terms of absolute certainty you know she, she will say it is impossible to avoid being socialized into this absolutely clearly you know it, it's a fact for her yeah so well, let's go back to the roots of it a little bit and talk about that that radical skepticism that was at the root of, of postmodern theory yeah I, I think there was a crisis of confidence among left-wing intellectuals where there was a, a time in the in the 60s it was a time of really profound cultural change so the um the, the two world wars um had had, had finished there was um, we'd seen the rise and fall of fascism and communism um the empire for that had fallen for for the brits and for other um europeans and at the same time as this there was a sort of rising youth culture a, a popular culture that was now vying with high culture there was mass production um of consumer goods uh, was happening and there was feminism gay pride and um and the civil rights movement so these changes were I think leftist intellectuals whose history had largely been Marxist were in this position of thinking, well, what can we rely on now? What can we, can we believe that anything is true? Because Marxism had, had failed quite spectacularly. And so it, it was one of the targets of the first postmodernists. And I, it, you know, when Lyotard described this as a, a general cultural phenomenon, that, that everybody was having a skepticism towards meta-narratives, I don't think they were. I think this was an intellectual thing. But he certainly is pointing at um, some quite some quite rapid changes between about 1960 and, and 1980. It was... Um, well, I, yeah, I think quite it's, uh, revolutionary. <laughs> I, I think that's somewhat revealing, though, that their attitude was, well, if we can't believe Marxism, what can we believe? I mean, from a, a non-Marxist perspective, that seems a little nuts, but I think it, it indicates the degree to which Marxism was a faith among the intellectuals of the era, and that when that faith crumbled, they, they weren't prepared for what comes next. I mean, I was, I was simplifying that, that quite a lot. But yes, Marxism was a the thing they looked at. They also looked at, at Christianity and at science and the whole idea of, of progress. And what they were looking at really was um, confidence in modernity. So Marxism was certainly one modernist um, approach to understanding the world. It believed in objective truth. It had a purpose. It, um, it believed that dialogue was valuable. So yeah, when when that all sort of crumbled, I I I think that was the the trigger, and and so do quite a few people who've um, traced the sort of philosophical roots in the other direction. We really start in about 1968, but um, yeah, it certainly wasn't the only um, meta narrative they wanted to deconstruct. No, I'm interested also in the way of turning against science, and there's a sort of uh... A, a trend that I've noticed, which is sort of like the revenge of the of the literary and humanities types against the sciences, because there's this sense that well, you science, you know, science had such enormous respect as a a generator of truth, and it strikes me a lot of behind what's behind uh, uh, critical theory and and not just that, but other other similar ideas is this idea of saying, no, 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 we're going to break it down. So we're going to show science is just a bunch of literary narratives, just like what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is what we're seeing um, quite a lot on, on social media at this very moment. You know, there are criticisms of, of maths as a social construct of two plus two equals science. Four. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> science is a... a I, I'm not even getting into that. As you know, my, my writing partner, James Lindsay, got very, very deeply into that. He is, in fact, a mathematician. I don't get into that because I'm, I'm, I'm rubbish at maths, but, but in the normal way, you know, not, not in the way that requires being a philosopher. 
So I, uh, I avoid that. But yeah, this is what has um, arisen really probably quite most strongly in post-colonial theory and queer theory. And those are the, the two that are most, um, that they, they, re they retain the, the strongest elements of postmodernism. So if we look at somebody particularly like Michel Foucault, and he had this concept of biopower, and what he meant by that was um, that when we're looking at these knowledges that are constructed by powerful forces in society, what is at the top of, of that list of most respected knowledge? It is science. And so because he related power and knowledge um, so much that he actually he coined the term power knowledge and, and that was what he understood knowledge to be. He was extremely suspicious of science and he referred to it as biopower. Now, there's a lot of reason. Um, bio is in you know, this, this is bio bio biological biology. power. Okay, yeah. yeah, so it, scientific discourses is really what biopower means. Um, to him, but you know, he's not entirely wrong. He, he looks back at, at history and, and we see, you know, he looks at the history of sexuality and we see that homosexuality was regarded as a heinous sin, then it was regarded as a disorder. Now it's um, a natural variation that some people are. So this isn't entirely wrong, but this isn't something that, that liberals or scientists or, or people who believe in an empirical um, truth have ever denied, that we tend to think that we can get closer to the truth, which the postmodernists are kind of radically skeptical about. They, they tend to look back and say, well, if we were wrong to believe this then, we're probably wrong to believe what we believe now. And that's the question that scientists ask as well. We, we cannot be sure that what we know now is the best way to look at things. In a hundred years, people will look at what we thought now and think that it was wrong. But this isn't a reason to give up on trying to get closer to the truth. And if we measure ways in which we have got closer to the truth and the benefits this has had for humanity, it, you can see it's a worthwhile thing to do. I, th I think the difference is that in a, in a sort of a, a rational or scientific worldview, there's a recognition of the existence of bias, but bias is seen as being in contrast to the ability to be objective. Whereas in the postmodern idea, there is basically, there's nothing but bias. Everything is bias. There is no objectivity to contrast it to. Yeah, precisely. I, I sort of describe it as a, as a scale, really. If you take the sort of ideal pure postmodernist and the ideal pure scientist, they both um, accept that there's an objective reality out there and they both know we can never be absolutely sure of having um, sort of grasped what it is. But yeah, whereas the scientist will sort of deal with this potential for human bias and human, uh, human error by trying to build systems to minimize it to as much you can and continue to try and find the truth. The postmodernists are much more interested in what the biases are and how they work and, and theorizing um, according to that, to their own ideology about, about what is, what is happening here. That truth isn't really an aim. See, I, I would take issue with the idea of a sliding scale. I think, you know, there are obviously things that we can certainly know about the world if you look around us. Theory, you know, the more theoretical and abstract something becomes, the more uncertainty you introduce that maybe you have abstracted it or theorized about it in the wrong way. So I, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of saying, oh, it's just a sliding scale. And because what they've done is they've basically said, you can never know anything. Uh, yeah, that's radical skepticism. Yeah, yeah. So the other aspect of that is the idea of the power of language. And they make that central to that the language basically shapes everything. It shapes your, your theory, it shapes your view of the world, and it actually shapes, I mean, they, they, they kind of dance around it, but they basically say language creates the world that you live in. And they say, well, it, creates your, it shapes your experience of the world. But what they really, you know, since they have the radical skepticism of nothing being outside of that, they're basically saying reality creates, or, or language creates your reality. And I think mm -hmm. that's how it ties into this obsession now with policing language. You know, if, if that shapes reality, whoever controls language controls controls the world. Yeah, I, I think this this is um, at, at root what we're seeing. I think um, the scholars and the academics would, would try to uh, make it more sophisticated than that, but that is what's at the the root. And this is what we're hearing from activists. There is close reading of language. There's an assumption that um, particularly racist and transphobic um, power structures will be underlying everything and a need to find them and, and fix them. Yeah. 
I, I think that you, you, what you've sort of talked about in the book is, is this uh, odd mutation from a radically skeptical uh, system to a radically dogmatic system, which seems like opposites, but in a way they're not. Uh, uh, that, you know, and there's a one particular quote from the book that I, I thought really captured this, and it's a uh, quote, because of its rejection of objective truth and reason, postmodernism refuses to substantiate itself and cannot therefore be argued with. And I think it's interesting that, you know, if you have a radically skeptical view, you have a view that can't be refuted or argued with, and therefore it becomes dogmatic uh, and, and um, uh, authoritarian. Yeah, th this, is, this is how it, it works. And this, I think, is counterintuitive to people. They, they tend to claim that it is science and reason that is dogmatic and thinks it knows everything, while they have humility of accepting that nothing can be known. But that, that isn't, it actually sort of works in the opposite way to that, because the the sort of objectivist standpoint really takes a quite a humble view of of never being completely sure that we know anything of always trying to falsify things of, of rechecking things that that is a, a a skepticism but if you're going with these I mean, Lyotard referred to it as a paralogy of, le of legitimation and what he meant by that was having all these different little local narratives and they are all equally true so now as it's, it has evolved, it's, it's gone much more into identity. So there will be the unique voice of colour, there will be um, the, the voice of, of trans people, um, listen to women, listen to women of colour, listen to trans women. And there's this idea that um, we have different knowledges related to our identity and how they are understood to work in relation to power. Yeah, that's something that interestingly came up in, in your book that that got me to thinking, which is you talk about how they reject both the individual and the universal. Yeah, I mean, th this is the the liberal humanist focus, um, which has been dominant for, for quite some time now, and, and which um, sort of underlay the civil rights movement and, and gay pride and liberal feminism of the 60s and 70s. And that focuses on the individual as someone who should have access to everything that society can offer and be able to fulfill uh, his or her unique potential. So, you know, that that's a big move away from sort of collectivist, socially conservative ideas of working within community, within um, families, and, you know, that, that individual as the, um, the person who must have uh, freedom and, and agency. And then we have the humanist idea as well, where everybody is essentially... Um, the, the same. We we are we have a common human nature. We are a a, a single group, and we can empathise across all kinds of divides and actually care about humanity as a whole. Yeah, I, I think that it's kind of interesting how you have these. You know, it's like how the the paradox that you could have a radically sceptical movement that then becomes authoritarian uh, as a and with rationality or a, a rational worldview, a scientific worldview or a scientific method as being the opposite of that. Same here, you have that kind of paradox where the individual and the um, universal might seem to be opposites, but actually those things go together as opposed to this sort of identitarian or group-oriented, uh, group small group-oriented. Yeah, I, I think we've, we've got all these, these sort of different elements there in, which sort of manifest politically, but I, I think are, are largely... Um, a mixture of culture and nature. So, I mean, if you were to have pure individualism, then you have something like um, uh, radical libertarianism. And if you were to have sort of pure humanism, then you have this kind of um, altruistic uh, sort of commune thing um, going on. But if you have liberal humanism, then you have what we really have developed over the uh, the, the modern period where we have the individual has um, freedom, the individual has rights, but we understand um, each other as all part of the same, the same species, the, the same, having the same human experience. Well, being, being on the more libertarian end of the quote unquote libertarian end of that, um, I think that it's actually not that different from the idea of, of universal rights and a universal nature of man being compatible with individuals. And I think that's actually part of the libertarian, or at least in, in my version of it, the libertarian worldview. 
Yeah, uh, the, the level playing field, yeah. Yeah, and, and well, and the idea that, you know, that we have common needs and uh, that, you know, trade and markets and, you know, the, the, and the marketplace of ideas can bring us together in that common needs and common language. Um, you know, it, I think one of the great misconceptions of a sort of a pro-free market or, or um, individualist view is the idea that we're against cooperation when we actually view private economy or an unregulated economy as a massive form of cooperation, just cooperation on different terms. But one of the issues I wanted to go on to here was, uh, is the thing we talk about how they're, they focus, the postmodern focus is on small groups and communities and sort of conformity to the values and ideas and, and worldview of those small groups or communities. It, it made me, as, as I was reading these descriptions, I started thinking, is the alt-right, you know, this sort of, uh, or the nationalist right that's been resurgent in America, and especially, you know, if you're on Twitter, so you've seen them, uh, is it postmodern in a way? Uh, that, that, that's an interesting thing because this is something else that, that we've been looking at as well. I don't think that um, the kind of white identity politics that we see or the um, sort of insular um, nationalist ideas are um, themselves postmodern or even the um, skepticism of, of expertise that we also tend to see from the populist right. But I think that this is, is connected because we've had this kind of um, th this kind of mentality, I think, that we're seeing in, in postmodernism, this idea of language being extremely powerful, of uh, humans existing in tribes um, with different knowledges. This is a, a generally a human intuition. The whole sort of development of, um, of liberalism and, and science was actually quite counterintuitive. So if we've seen where we have postmodernists who tell us that we um, think in terms of science and reason by default and we have to learn to focus instead on narratives and experiences, that's actually nonsense. We have always focused on narratives and experiences and trying to hold on to an expectation that there will be evidence for truth claims, that there will be reasoned arguments is much harder. So I don't think that... Um, Postmodern, postmodernism itself, this development on the left has caused the issue on the right, uh, the origins. I think this has always um, been there. This has been a human trait. Post-truth works like postmodernism. Alternative ways of knowing works like um, alternative truths. Yeah, there's uh, alternative facts. There's So we're at a time now when you could call it an era of postmodernism where it has become quite normal not to care too much if what you're saying is true, to care more about a satisfying narrative than the facts of a matter that can be established. So that, that's what we were calling the post-truth um, phenomenon. And I think postmodernism has certainly um, played into that a lot. But uh, the best person for this, I think, is um, Matt McManus. He's uh, an editor at Aereo and one of our most popular writers. And he's published the book, The Rise of, um, of Postmodern Conservatism, where he's looking at, at how this is working on the right. It's a very good read. I, I was um, skeptical of it, but I, I see how, how it all works in now. My, my experience, especially, you know, arguing with people on Twitter and online, that sort of thing, is that, and you talk about a little bit about this in the book, about how the, the left and right kind of, or the, the nationalist or, or racist right and the, and the postmodern left sort of feed off of each other in a way. Uh, and one of the things I see is that the, uh, the, the white nationalist types or the, or the, the alt-right or the tribalist, more tribalist right, <coughs> they will come in and basically say, they'll look at what postmodernists say and what the anti-rape, quote-unquote anti-racists who are, expressing these postmodernist views, they look at what they say and they say, well, see, look, they agree with us. So it's not so much that it caused them, but it almost validates them by presenting them with a, a mirror image or a negative image. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen um, uh, Richard Spencer, is it, yeah, uh, recently agreeing with, with Ibram Kendi, um, but yeah, with a, a different moral um, a slant on it. And and yeah, that this is this is not surprising. This is um, illiberalism, it is um, tribalism, and it does look pretty much the same. And, and we get a lot of the same kind of tactics as well. So when I've tried to, uh, when I when I wrote with uh, Jim the um, an argument for the inclusion of trans people, um, 
then I got a lot of people, I must stay in my lane, I'm not trans, I mustn't talk about trans issues, I mustn't talk about race issues because I'm white. And so much of this um, stay in your lane and stop talking over people. But then when I have um, criticized um, Trump, say on Twitter, I suddenly get a lot of American conservatives saying, you have no right to talk about this as a British woman, you know, stay, stay in your lane, essentially. And we get the same kind of social constructive, uh, social constructivism going on as well. While we have, um, you know, people on the, the postmodern left telling us that uh, we're constantly reconstructing racist and sexist ideas with the way we talk about things, we, I get people on the right telling me that um, something like feminism has um, corrupted the minds of women and is now making them really unhappy. And so sometimes I find, particularly when it comes to the roles of women, that there's a kind of a battle going on from feminists who are, are claiming that, that women are being um, brainwashed with these ideas of um, domesticity and their own sort of roles as, as mothers. And then other people claiming that women are being brainwashed into feminism to having to go and work in cubicles. And I just, this, um, you know, I, I think women have agency. We, we are individuals, obviously culture's a big impact, but um, I think we can evaluate our own lives. <laughs> And, and one of the things that I, you know, everybody's, I think, has seen with, especially with Joanne Rowling and all, all that sort of thing, uh, that there is, you know, amongst the postmodern or amongst the uh, woke set, there because they divide everything up into little tribes and groups, they also have their own internecine tribal battles. Yeah, the, the the big sort of the battle that we're seeing between the um, gender critical feminists and the trans activists at the moment is uh, it's it's useful um, to kind of demonstrate the difference between the descendants of the Marxists and the descendants of the postmodernists. So because the Marxists were seeing everything in terms of oppressed and oppressor classes and um, a need to sort of raise consciousness and um, and sort of dismantle these these power systems. We see that in the radical feminists or gender critical feminists who see men and women as classes of people and defined by their biological function. The radical feminism, it has its roots in Marxist ideas through Engels about um, men um, producing, working class men producing labor and, and working class women producing laborers. And this has kind of evolved into this um, sort of black and white, men are people with penises, women are uh, people with uteruses. And because of the history of this, men have been able to dominate women. So they cannot believe that trans identity is in any way a real thing. It has to be a, um, uh, something that is, is entirely socially constructed and also because of this kind of paranoid mindset it is often conflated with um, patriarchy and men's rights activism to get into women's spaces. Now the the trans activists are coming very much from the postmodern um, point of view from from queer theory and so they have a, a complicated belief that gender is both a social construct and absolutely real and sex is actually probably a, a social construct as well because we have decided that categories of men and women exist and are, are so titled because of biological essentialism so they're coming from completely different places and they're sort of um, uh, <laughs> firing at each other and uh, they're, they're talking past each other completely. So that it is quite useful when people are saying, but surely this um, postmodern thing, this social justice is just an evolution of Marxism. That, no, it, it's, it's, that you won't understand it that way. Look at the, the radical feminists and you'll see what a, an evolution of Marxism looks like. Look at social justice and you'll see what an evolution of postmodernism looks like. Well, I, I actually am I'm, I'm on the side of the people who think that it is in one sense, an evolution of Marxism, because when I see a lot of these things, um, and that's actually, you know, you sort of begin, in the, in the, you and James in the book, uh, begin the history of philosophy in the 1960s with the postmodernists, the rise of the mm -hmm. postmodernists. Um, when I look at it from a, a wider perspective, so for example, when you look at what's the connection between the postmodernists and say the alt-right or the nationalists, I think there's a, a line that go, there's a line of connection that goes all the way back to the, you know, the 19th century romantic movement. Uh, this idea of rejecting enlightenment reason and thinking that emotion and communities and tradition and, and, and group traditions are way much more important. There is an element there that's being drawn on almost by the postmodernists. 
Yeah, yeah. We we can certainly go a lot further back, but um, I think um, people like Stephen Pinker and um, and Hicks, Stephen Hicks, they've sort of looked at things in terms of Enlightenment thinking and counter Enlightenment thinking. Yeah. And in that case, the the Marxists um, were Enlightenment thinkers; they were modernists, and the postmodernists are counter Enlightenment thinkers. But actually, actually, I, I, I would disagree with that categorization of Marxists as Enlightenment thinkers because I think you know, one of the, there's a famous quote from Marx about the base and the superstructure. This idea that you know, the base of society is the economic relationships and the relationships of class and the superstructure by which he means anything relating to ideas and theories and religion and culture, that's mm. this, you know, this ephemeral thing built on top of the base, and it exists basically just to serve the base. It's all just a legitimating ideology. So I think that that Marxist idea of anybody who disagrees with me is just, you know, I don't have to really deal with the truth of their assertions. They're just providing a legitimating ideology for a system of oppression. That goes all the way back to the Marxists. Well, I, I think the Marxists had um, a meta-narrative. They, um, obviously, Marx was, was very much influenced by Darwin. Uh, and he was um, looking at, at the way to produce um, sort of a species being to, to make humanity... Um, sort of grow into what it, it was intended to be. I, I really see the difference between Marxists and postmodernists as the Marxists having, believing in an objective truth, believing in modernism, believing in, in progress and that there was going to be an evolution towards greater truth as being wrong while the postmodernists are not even wrong because they don't have that belief in truth in the first place and every they, they only have if we're looking at what what you were just saying about about marx they only have the superstructure there isn't um this is a, a very different thing to saying you know like we, we can i think liberals as well we, we can say that this is true there is a an, a a material reality and then there are ideologies that explain it i don't think marxism is the best one. If we wanted to look at the influences of Marxism on postmodernism, and we might actually do this, Jim and I are thinking of um, going back a little bit further and looking at more influences in, in detail, we see certainly um, some sharing of Hegel. So that's, um, that's quite a, that's a, probably a common ancestor. Uh, for both of them. We see uh, this idea of false consciousness, which has kind of been turned within postmodern ideas to this critical consciousness, which is now sort of um, commonly known as woke. And um, we have, uh, we, we have a, a number of, of similarities about um, the, the, the concept of, of uh, a revolutionary sort of zeal. So I think we've got influences on the postmodern thought via Marcuse and the new left into the sort of um, the, the Black Panthers particularly, so and the, the Black feminists. So this is, is where we still have this kind of revolutionary rooted in Marxist ideas that have come into social justice um, from its own very particular stream um, through the new left, the black feminists, uh, critical race theory, intersectionality. So that, that's certainly there. And we also have um, from Gramsci the concept of hegemony, which is very, uh, very much still a central part of social justice and, and was um, sort of foundational to the, the postmodern ideas as well. There's, there's these dominant discourses and they win out. But if you're looking at the scholarship, you will not find them quoting Marx very much or even the Frankfurt School. They are overwhelmingly quoting Foucault and then some Derrida and Lyotard. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still very much that, that spirit that's in yeah. there. And it, it reveals itself more in the activism than the scholarship. Well, my, my experience with philosophers, including especially academic philosophers, is that they often are shockingly unaware of the deeper roots uh, of, you know, because they come in into a little tradition and uh, talking to each other, talking amongst themselves with people who share a general sensibility, and they're often shockingly unaware of the precursors and roots, historically, of those philosophical views. I, I find that, um, I, I've been arguing with philosophers quite a lot, <laughs> I find the opposite problem, really. Mm. I, I think they're, they're trying to keep it in a uh, the pure realm of ideas, and they stop at around 1975 quite often. So they are then quite 
sort of confused by how I am saying that this the current discourse analysis, the current um, understanding of power is postmodern. So we have these arguments in which they, it, what it reminds me of is when you're trying to address some kind of social problem that is, say, say caused by... Um, fundamentalist interpretations of Islam. If you were trying to look at, say, female genital mutilation, and this is an issue and you're, you're trying to work out ways to address it, it's like when a sophisticated Islamic theologian comes in and starts referring you to the core text and what the prophet actually meant. And while this is obviously important and interesting to people who believe um, in that faith, it's not really that helpful when we're looking at how the ideas have evolved and are being used in society on real people right now. I think it is useful to, yeah, it, it, that I think you can also get too focused on the right now. Um, and I, I find it interesting that you are looking at the deeper roots of this. And one of the things that jumped out at me in reading the book is uh, that one of the deeper roots you want to look at is Immanuel Kant, because there's a whole number of statements here. Let's say I wrote a couple of them. Uh, the idea that we, uh, we are limited in our ability to know and must express knowledge through language, concepts, and categories. And Kant, Kant was really sort of the, the author. I mean, he sort of viewed as an enlightenment, uh, as one of the last of the great enlightenment philosophers. I think he's the last for a reason because I think he kind of killed it off. And what he specifically came up with is this idea that, well, there might be a, there's an objective reality out there, but we can't know it. Everything's filtered through our categories. And you know the yeah. mental categories we have in our mind shape everything we perceive. And now he, the difference that he between him and today is he thought, well, those categories are universal. You know, all human beings share them, so we're all sort of sharing the same collective delusion. But I think I sort of view the 19th century as working out that implications of, well, no, it's not universal. Well, you know, there's this group versus that group, and it's divided by class, or it's divided by, and then eventually it's divided by race, uh, and race, class, and gender. And I think, in a way, I see the postmodernists as being the, the people who took that Kantian framework of there's no, we don't have contact with reality. All we have is contact with something shaped by our own mental categories. They've taken that idea to its farthest extreme, in a way. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is certainly um, what we're, we're always seeing a recycling, a, a sort of separating, a rejoining again of, of different ideas. Uh, Jim and I, we, we wanted to sort of draw a map of where everything comes from. And it, it really is so complicated because we saw this sort of radical divide between Marxism and postmodernism. Then we can see bits of it sort of coming back together again within certain um, groups. And it's um, people are sort of taking bits from here, there and everywhere. And most people haven't read the philosophers or even um, the postmodernists. But these are currents that are, that are in society. So when at the same time that I'm criticizing postmodern discourse analysis, what I'm doing is discourse analysis, because I am I'm looking at how people are talking about things and how they are conceptualizing them, and trying to make this accessible to people who are seeing the symptoms of it, but find the underlying thought counterintuitive and, and haven't really grasped it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that the, the people underestimate the extent to which, you know, I was at a uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes has this famous quote about how, you know, the, about the practical man who is actually the slave of some defunct economist, right? Because he's, mm. he, he's taking the ideas of some economists that have been floating around in the culture and, and just using them and acting on them without ever having realized that that's what he's doing. And I, I think mm. uh, the same can be said that a lot of people are, are slaves of a defunct philosopher. I, I think this is always going to be the, the case. I mean, I when I looked at um, when I, in my academic work, I'm looking at um, religious writing, and I've always been particularly interested in Augustine because he was so malleable um, for both Catholics and Protestants to use in any way. But there really isn't any individual who has been more influential on the development of um, Western philosophy and Christianity, which were the two sort of you know main. Um, developments in the West. So there are people now, um, and you could ask them a number of questions, you'd find that they had a lot of common sense assumptions, and they'd have no idea that this came essentially from Augustine. So my fear at the moment is that um, Foucault could actually function in, in this same kind of way and, and actually change the way people 
are thinking about things because I can see some people have taken him off in one direction and some people have taken him off in another direction. But there are, are now people saying um, all kinds of things about not power knowledge and, and discourses and then they don't know where it came from, but they are really are channeling Foucault. <laughs> Right, ex exactly. Um, now, that raises the question when you talk about how, how pervasive it's become. And that raises the question of, you know, when you look at a phenomenon like that, where it grows from being relatively unknown to being extremely pervasive, it can go one of two ways. It can either come and take over everything and become the, the, dog, the ruling dogma of, of a society. Or you could look at it and think, well, maybe we've reached the peak, you know, that it's, it's the, mm. you know, you're at, we're just at the peak of the fad and this is about to fade out, fade out. And so I guess I will get your sense of where do you think we are with that? I, I keep changing on this. What I, I thought was going to happen for, for quite a while is when we were, were doing our project where we were sending in papers to academic journals. And then mm -hmm. after that, there was quite a lot of academics who wanted to distance themselves from the kind of scholarship we were criticizing. Now, let's, so let's talk about I that was for thinking, what could... Let's talk about that for a second. You're talking about SoCal too, right? Uh, yes, as they, as they called it, yeah. But um, we we sent papers to journals which really are indistinguishable from the papers they were already publishing. So they shouldn't be embarrassed if they stand by that kind of work. That was what it was. But they it did include some of the worst concepts, some of the worst um, in them. Uh, impossible or really implausible data and then drew conclusions that weren't even warranted from it uh, and we just used a lot of theory to argue for things that made no sense whatsoever were or were unethical so we got quite a lot of those papers um, in but you know that that's that was something we were trying to show people what was out there and then a lot of academics who had been sympathetic to it were saying no there's still a lot of good empirical scholars and there are and so we were kind of I was hopeful in a way what I thought was likely to happen was that there would be a drawing away from it that it had peaked and that it people would move away and it wouldn't become a big crisis and then everybody would say that Jim and Peter and me and all the others were making having a big moral panic about nothing um, because it had died away and you know oh well we can deal with that but that isn't what happened and so with particularly the coronavirus um, making people anxious I think making people want something to fight mm -hmm. then they're sort of withdrawing into um, their own spaces and getting in you know spending most of their time with their online echo chamber right and then the the, the killing of George Floyd that you know it was like you know light the touch paper and and what has been threatening it's been bubbling up all over the place I imagine it as this kind of toxic gas that is under the surface of society and then it's uh, it's bubbled up in places like evergreen college um like young adult books like the ravelry knitting circle it's come and sort of um destroyed um sort of sections of society but most of the time it's just kind of bubbling under there and then i think the combination of, of the coronavirus and and um the killing of george floyd has has just made it burst into what is really in the u.s really does seem to be an attempted cultural revolution yeah, I think it's an attempt at cultural revolution. I'm not sure how far down it proceeds, but I think I think the role of social media is important because, you know, one thing I was struck by it in years ago in the, in the uh, Thomas Kuhn wrote the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and I don't know if you count him as a postmodernist, but there's a similarity there because he has this idea that scientific uh, uh, theories cannot really be settled by evidence or by experiments. Uh, they can't even be falsified by evidence of experiments. They're only really decided by social consensus. And he has a section late in the book, I remember, uh, this really uh, jumped out at me, a section late in this book where he says, well, this, my theory about how science works is itself something that will be settled and accepted by social consensus. So it's almost like there's sort of like a, a, a gang rule as a method of philosophy, right? If I can get a big enough group to go and back my ideology, then therefore we can act like it's, we're entitled to act like it's true just because we have a group. And it strikes me that that makes Twitter the perfect medium for this kind of approach to, to ideas. Yeah, I, I think this is the human approach. I mean, when mm -hmm. people have difficulty understanding um, how something can be considered true if it isn't the reality. I, I usually try to explain it by saying it's not that the postmodernists say that there isn't a reality, but that they say that the way we um, decide what is true 
um, decides what the reality is. So we can say that it is true that the Earth orbits the Sun because there is evidence that that is the reality. But the fact that we choose correspondence as reality as the model of truth, they would say is the cultural construct. If another culture used a religious narrative about um, the Sun being a chariot driven across the sky by a god, then there isn't any grounds to say that that model of truth is less worthy than the correspondence with reality model of truth. So, you know, this is, I think, how humans tend to think. We are above all storytelling animals. It would be great if we were actually naturally scientists, but we're not. And I think Jonathan Haidt is, is the best on this. When he says we have a, an inner lawyer rather than an inner scientist, and he argues that we, we work on shared narratives because they have done best at keeping people alive rather than discovering the truth, which can sometimes be quite upsetting. So yeah, this is what we have. And now when we have social media where we can sort of attend a buffet and find other people um, holding the same truths, we can also simplify and bastardize the narratives and, and kind of swell them among our own echo chambers. I, I think, yeah, we, we're having a significant problem. Up until recently, I didn't agree that social media was a problem itself. I thought it was just a tool for accelerating the problem but i i've now come to believe that yes this is actually changing the way we think well i, I don't i don't know to what extent i i kind of have to go back and forth on the same thing about is social media a disease uh, or is it just symptom uh but i do think that social media combined with the coronavirus has made it worse because people aren't getting out into the world as much to interact with people who are different from them and it, yeah. it really does sort of put you into the bubble but what i want to end on here though is talking about you know, what is the answer to this so that you spend the last part of the book talking about a defense of liberalism as the answer to this i think there's going to need to be a lot more writing about what the answer is in a lot of different um situations we've looked at mostly what the answer is in in terms of ideas how we need to think about things in order to address the problem so we think that um, urgently, we need to apply the rules of secularism to the critical social justice ideas. That is, they, they need to be something that a, an individual can hold, can express and can live by, but not be imposed on anyone else. The problem we're having at the moment is that we're seeing these ideas as a universal sort of standard for equality, when actually it should be in the same category as a belief system like um, a religion. So that's something that needs to happen quite urgently. They, people shouldn't be having to write um, diversity, equity and inclusion statements that draw on critical social justice ideas to get jobs any more than they should have to you know, recite the Apostles' Creed or anything like this. This is a specific approach to social justice, not social justice itself. In the longer term, I think we just need to beat the ideas. We need to um, be able to address them. We need to understand them as they are and know how to argue with them. And that's essentially what our book is for. We want people who don't have any background in the scholarship to be able to, to grasp how it works and also to then be able to articulate their own problem with it. Because a lot of people sense the problem. They, can, they feel that it, it's wrong, it's, it's unethical, it's not consistent and it's not rooted in reality, but it's difficult to get at. So that I think is the next step. I, I think it's interesting, too, that, that liberalism you use in a broader sense, one that would actually, and in some ways, I mean, because I've always, I would be considered on the right in America, but I've never described myself as a conservative. I've always said I would call myself a liberal if in America it meant, you know, pro-freedom, which it doesn't necessarily mean in America. It has a very complicated history there. Um, uh, you know, if, if liberalism embraced being pro-free market, which is more the case historically and around the world, so liberalism, I, I see, you know, one of the interesting things I see emerging from this sort of critique of postmodernism, you know, in your book, but also elsewhere, is a sense that there are liberal strains on the left and the right, and maybe we should be talking to each other and banding together a little bit more against the illiberal strains. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the piece, we, we wrote a great long manifesto called uh, a Manifesto Against the Enemies of Modernity, James Lindsay and I, and what we're essentially talking about there is uh, liberalism that can exist on both the left and the right. It's a, a respect for, for science, for reason, for plurality, for the marketplace of ideas. We didn't use the word liberalism because of the problem in America of people associating it with the left, whereas um, in Australia, people will associate it with the right. Right. And here in the UK, people tend to see it as a, a kind of um, status quo centrism. Yeah, what do the Lib Dems stand for these days? Does anybody know? No, they, they keep vacillating all over the place. I had hopes of them, but no more. But you know, when, when I'm talking about liberalism, I am talking about that philosophical concept of, of freedom of um yeah of the individual of the universal of uh, meritocracy and um, it, and colorblindness and you know i found it very interesting that you describe uh liberalism as an intellectual system not just a political system or an ethical system but an intellectual system I mean, I think the best way to understand it is a, a system of, of conflict resolution. So it's not the solution to a conflict like Marxism is or, or like free markets are, but the, the system in which um, people can coexist. So you can have um, a lot of different beliefs. You can have Christians and Muslims. You can have conservatives and Marxists um, in a society. And there's a balance where nobody is allowed to impose their ideas on anybody else. And I think that's what makes uh, liberalism fragile because there isn't this kind of cohesion. We, we tend to be reformers rather than um, revolutionaries or reactionaries. And I, I think anybody who is a reformer and has these concepts of freedom and plurality and viewpoint diversity is what I'm talking about as a liberal. Now, I am not um, economically a liberal, so I, we, we will probably argue probably quite severely there, but culturally I am. So <laughs> I was, that's why I call myself a left liberal, because I, I have um, e leftist economic views and, um, and liberal social cultural ones. <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, that's emerging in my mind as, as a pretty solid base of uh, of at least being able to work together and interact and have conversations, which you cannot have with uh, some of the more authoritarian or liberal types. So, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the need to understand this so that we to understand what's going on with postmodernism and with this rise of, of critical theory so that we know how to answer it and can develop a sort of philosophical antibodies to it. Uh, and I think your book has been a, uh, your, your James's book is, is a great, valuable addition to that. Um, so I, I, we're running up against our time, so I want to thank you for, for coming on, and I, I look forward to uh, trading with you in the marketplace of ideas, uh, and maybe someday get you to embrace the other kind of marketplace. <laughs> so many people have tried that. I, <laughs> I cause libertarians to despair, I'm afraid. It's been, it's been great talking to you, Robert. Thanks, thanks for coming on. This is Slon the Refuse. My guest today has been Helen Pluckrose, uh, editor of Aereo Magazine and co-author of the new book, uh, Cynical Theories. Uh, if you like this conversation, uh, you can uh, uh, follow us on YouTube. You can follow us, uh, follow the podcast, uh, which is available through Google Play and iTunes and elsewhere. Uh, if you find the ideas in this conversation interesting, you can also find more ideas and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, www.trzinskiletter.com. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thank you for listening.